episode of Childhood Ruined. I am one of your hosts, Michael Mallon, and joining me as always is Chris Benefield. Hello, hello. Yes, we were just discussing how the winter geddon that we are yes. dealing with right now totally changed our plans for the evening. We were scheduled to defend our music trivia title at a local brewery. Uh, shout out to Baldman Brewery here in Minnesota. And it's, I don't even know what the right phrase is. Arctic cold doesn't seem enough oomph. Well, let's put it this way. It is colder here than it is right now in the Arctic Circle in Siberia at uh, base camp of Mount Everest. And at least some... Uh, you know, areas that measure temperature at the South Pole. Although I guess it's it's summer there, so maybe that's less surprising. But so it's legit scary cold. It is so cold that the postal service canceled tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they deliver mail through everything except when there's a wind chill of negative fifty. Right. Um, so yeah, we had to change some plans. So we figured let's let's record a podcast. Mm-hmm. And after the runaway success of the Teal podcast last week, <laughs> where we discussed our thoughts about the Weezer album, check that out if you have yet to hear it. Uh, any additional thoughts about that now that you've had some time to, to marinate on the tracks and the selections? Um, not particularly. I don't. I haven't changed my mind at all. Um, it, it it seems like. You know, on that day, I felt like the little that I saw, because, you know, it had just come out that day that we recorded. So, yes. you know, we were there, on top of it. The Internet reacted quickly in terms of Twitter, but in terms of like official outlets and whatnot, there wasn't that much out there that day when we recorded. And subsequently, I've been seeing the reactions from, you know, people that I sort of care about or sort of you know, trust what they say. And they're, they're pretty much on our, on our side of this. So. Yeah. I was trying to look up the, the quote you had sent me an article, I think from Thrillist. Y yep. And I don't know if that was there or, or if that was one, whether they were just linking somebody else's, but yeah. And it was just general that it'll be forgotten pretty soon. And I don't, I don't want to rehash the whole podcast. So go, go back and, and listen to that. But mm -hmm. it, it does relate to a topic that I wanted to discuss with you yeah. about just nostalgia, which is a good good chunk of what this podcast is about, given that right. we're often talking about items from our childhood that have been changed, altered, reborn, mm -hmm. killed once again, killed for good. It's just a lot of that. So Weezer releasing a cover album actually fits into that pretty uh, nicely mm -hmm. um, but there were a few things that ha had come up recently including just some news today that came out that that GameStop gave up on trying to find a buyer right so they're I guess trying to sell the company my guesses without reading too much of the articles that the store is struggling to make a profit which mm -hmm. is not surprising given that physical media is sort of going away. Uh, we've we talked about the death of Toys R Us right. last year. That's another episode if you want to go uh, hear two grown men lamenting the loss of a toy store. <laughs> go right yes. ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. um, but just 
game stores, physical, tangible game stores going away, if that's in, indeed where we're headed, makes me kind of sad. And I was wanting to get your reactions. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you know me. I'm I'm a record person. Uh, I, I, I have a thing for sometimes being able to tangibly hold the, the thing in your hand, um, look at things, etc., um, I prefer paper magic over online magic as much because the, it, you know, is an excuse to socialize as, you know, the, the format that you're playing it in. But, um, I gotta be honest, GameStop specifically doesn't really strike a ton of nostalgia for me. I mean, I feel like from the get go, GameStop has always had a little bit of a, I don't know, uh, a, a mixed relationship with <laughs> gamers in that, um, you know, they're just things that while they may be perfectly reasonable f- from a business perspective, from a consumer perspective, just seemed ridiculous, you know, that they wanted to give you $1 for a game and then they're selling it for only $2 less than the, you know, $60 brand new copy. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but not really. Uh, there, there are yeah. definitely problems with that model, and I've I've struggled with that store for many years of the whole concept of intellectual property and a game is sold, person plays it, enjoys it, or doesn't, takes it back to GameStop, sells it, recoups a little bit of their investment in the game. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that the developers of the game don't. They don't get any part of that transaction. Oh, yeah, correct. Developers and, and publishers hate the used game right. market, just like music publishers hated the UCD market when that was actually a thing. So. UCD stores. Ah, oh, good time. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I, I do not want to get too whimsical about GameStop because that has always bugged me. And I've certainly purchased my fair share of used games from GameStop, given everyone's trying to to save a little bit of money here and there, and mm-hmm. if there's a game that got okay reviews, or you know, typically I don't get to all the A-list titles right away, especially in recent years. So it just made sense to buy them cheaper. But again, I realize I'm not supporting the game right. the people that made it through them. So again, <laughs> it it's an issue. Yeah, and and I think part of probably why they're hurting is, um, you know, some of the same reasons why a lot of places are hurting, which is I have discovered, you know, it's I've probably only been in GameStop three or four times in the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. And part of that is because it reached a point where you could often get the brand new, like you were saying, you kind of want this A-list title that you didn't um play it right when it came out and so you don't want to pay for the full 60 for it and frequently then you could just get on amazon and it would be cheaper than the copies at gamestop were for a brand new copy from amazon so it just become a pretty rare event that i was in a gamestop usually with one of my kids just kind of wanting to browse for something that they they wanted to play that would be cheap was probably the main reason i've been in there at all recently well and everything is digital so you don't have to buy a physical copy of a game to play it correct and in fact 
many of the games that I want to play these days, just the way my gaming habits are, tend to be more like indie games that I've heard something good about. And then often that's the only option. Like there is no physical copy at GameStop. Yeah, so Steam is not that I, not a huge PC gamer, just because allocating time. Uh, right. But I have the last PC game I really dove into was XCOM 2, which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. Purchased that through Steam. Before that, I dabbled with Civilization VI. Uh, toyed around with The Witcher 3 for a while and realized I'm never going to finish this game. And just moved on, <laughs> yeah. to, moved on to something else, even right. though it was fun while it lasted. But like, I don't really think about buying a computer game at a store mm-hmm. where before you would go to Best Buy or somebody had chimed in as I was talking about this on Twitter today. today uh, about uh, missing electronics boutique in EB games. <laughs> right. And that's like more nostalgia of like, Oh yeah, I remember those places. And I think they were owned by the same folks that did Sam Goody and Suncoast mm. video and all those places are just gone. And yeah. And, and that was a little bit different because that was often like at an age that you would go to a mall and just kind of wander around. So that would be you know, the music store, the game store, these were stops that at least I always made if I was wandering around a mall with, you know, no intent. So. And I realize I'm still doing that. I do it every Sunday. I wake up typically with my wife and we take our son to the Mall of America and just do laps, which I've talked about before, especially when it's this cold. It's That's like the, the most Minnesota thing ever, by the way. You think even more so than curling, which is something I've also done. <laughs> I mean, getting up and going to Mall Walk, the Mall of America, every Sunday, it's, I don't know, it's just... Four you, laps you, around that place is like 7.5 thousand steps. It's Yeah, I believe it. It's pretty good. Did, did you come home and have some tater tot hot dish after that? or? I mean, you can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some walleye, mm-hmm. uh, fish fry on a Friday. Yeah. So sorry, I'm, I'm getting us off topic. <laughs> no, I just I talked about that. Like, th- there's going to be experiences that I had and took for granted that my son's not. Just, it's going to be like a different planet to him. He's going to be like, yeah. what, are you, what are you malls? What are those? <laughs> mm-hmm. Where that's the direction we're heading in. Um, it's just a bummer, and I, I think part of the allure for me was browsing, you know, Mm -hmm. Oh, this game looks interesting. And you used to make decisions based on box art and what was on the back of a box. (laughs) Right. Which are often terrible, terrible decisions. Yes. Terrible decisions. And now we're all smarter in, Mm -hmm. in some ways where you look at critic scores and you get a sense pretty early of, well, this game's really good. This is a superb game. You definitely need to play it. This one's, eh, this one's okay. And then it seems like everything else just goes in the you never play this bin. Right. But that's, you know, I'm kind of okay with that because as a kid, I spent way too much money on really, really bad games uh, because there was no internet to tell me better. You know, magazines would be way behind release dates in a lot of cases. And, 
you know, I think the first game changer on that was, you know, when Blockbuster had games. And so you could go to Blockbuster and rent it and see if it was any good instead of dropping, you know, I forget what the MSRP of like a Atari 2600 or NES game was, but um, I'm sure adjusted for um, inflation. It wasn't that far off what a lot of games cost now. And, you know, those were costly mistakes on a, <laughs> on a, on a you shoestring know, budget 11 year old budget <laughs> mom i want to buy this what you just bought a game well that one game's terrible i need this new game yeah like I, I remember buying multiple just awful fighter games because i loved street fighter 2 in the arcade and i wanted something like that at home and it didn't exist for any system yet and, and you bought some, bad dudes or some, whatever that game was called crappy dev- i mean bad dudes isn't even that bad of a game compared to some of the ones that i bought that were just supposed to be like that one-on-one fighting type game that uh you know smart developers rushed to you know put out there into that vacuum when people were really into that and it, the actual street fighter didn't exist on a console so this ties into something else that I wanted to pick your brain about because mm-hmm. we recently saw Bumblebee together. We took your son, which yep. was a good time. It was one of those movies where it sort of wasn't really on my radar. And then I saw a bunch of people online saying, this is really good. You should actually see it. It's mm-hmm. it's like a decent Transformers movie. Just throw out all the other terrible ones that they've created. Mm-hmm. So we made a point to see it. I think we were both kind of ill that evening if i recall uh i was not feeling I was, well i was getting over uh yeah yeah and i remember that night outside it was like wow this is really cold and now it seems silly that we were talking <laughs> that way since it's about 40 degrees colder now mm-hmm. so anyway we saw saw the movie and it was surprisingly good it was surprisingly well done and i think you had the best description of it when we were when we were talking on facebook i think you described it as it's like somebody found footage of an 80s movie and updated the effects. So, right. So what do you mean by that? Well, honestly, I, I kind of mean that in both good and sort of potentially negative ways if you're not viewing it through that nostalgia lens, meaning like, you know, the the – Script was pretty predictable, 80s fodder script stuff. Somebody um, described it as a girl with a horse movie. Yeah, right. And it has all those beats of girl finds a horse and the horse is scared and then the horse is her friend. And it's, <laughs> it really does follow that yep. pretty, um, pretty closely, except it's a, it's a robot and his name yeah, is Bumblebee. Right. It's almost, you know, it's in some ways it's like E.T., but, you know, it's the robot. Anyway, um and Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on it. You could feel a little bit of that sensibility to the movie. Um, and, 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 and innocence about it. Correct. And there was, you know, sort of, there were, you know, over the top acting, especially from John Cena. There was, uh, you know, just. Who was some, really good in the flick. Yeah, there's just some he, he cheesy. Does his, yeah, he does his like goober, goofball, straight guy pretty well. Yeah. And there, there, you know, there's some bad, cheesy one liners. But all that being said, if you sort of come into it, like I said, where you're sort of watching like, oh, they found 
this unreleased Bumblebee movie from 1989 and updated the special effects. Like, it's really fun. Yeah, it kind of feels like the like I remember Monster Squad. Like, it just sort of feels like it. It's a cousin to that movie where mm-hmm. some kids are getting into trouble and sort of these weird things happen, but it all works right. out in the end. And another movie it reminded me of is Iron Eagle, <laughs> <laughs> where it's like, okay, sure, we're going to steal a plane and fly to the Middle East and rescue our dad who's being held hostage because that's totally plausible and makes sense. <laughs> right. I'm going to just fly through all these airspaces and yeah, it'll it be cool. Yeah, it was the 80s. These things made, yeah. you know, made sense. <laughs> Louis Gossett Jr. had all the answers. Right. So, yeah, I agreed. It it. It operates under that sort of 80s logic, um, I think, at least to some degree, very purposefully. Like, you know, not I don't know if it's quite tongue in cheek, but it's it's close. Um, well, well that, you know, that, it, that gets at a little bit what I want to talk about and what I'd be mm-hmm. actually curious to hear from you and uh, listeners about how they feel about this, because the, the nostalgia piece there's a lot of efforts to try to cash in on that. And some of them have been really bad. Mm-hmm. And some of them have been pretty decent. I think this one <laughs> felt genuine. And I'm wondering, is there a formula for pandering? Like what, what works in terms of this nostalgia and what doesn't? And yeah. hold that thought for a second, because it mm-hmm. <clears throat> relates to an interview I did on my other podcast, shout out to Ego Check with the ADM, um, I interviewed Kyle Newman, who was one of the authors for Art and Arcana, which is this retrospective visual history of Dungeons & Dragons on its mm-hmm. fifth anniversary. And he also happens to be the person who directed Fanboys, the Star Wars flick about the yeah. trying to steal Episode One so their sick friend could see it before he died, so... There were like all these things I wanted to ask him about. And one of the things I asked him about was nostalgia, because the latest edition of D&D has, I think, unlocked a formula for kind of throwing back to famous adventures, famous settings from previous editions, while at the same time not seeming like they're just doing a reboot of everything. Mm-hmm. And he sort of explained how that's happening and sort of the difference between something like D&D and something like Star Wars, where there's been more manufactured or not, a little bit more of a backlash to updating those stories. And it was just kind mm-hmm. of an interesting conversation. Um, so it seems like, I mean, a lot of franchises, a lot of entire forms of entertainment are kind of going through this reboots, uh, sequels or trying to figure out how do we recapture X, Y, and Z. And we're sort of in the wheelhouse of their demographic that they're chasing. Mm-hmm. So what do you think works? Um, I mean, I think what I kind of had in my head as you were bringing this up was stranger things like, okay. Yeah. That's a great I, you know, as I was, as you're kind of talking about this and I mean, I'm, you know, like anything, I'm not sure there's just like one set of rules or formula that you can apply to these things. I mean, number one, like it's got to be done with 
some fidelity. Like you set out to tell a fun story or do something fun, um, not just to reboot something because people liked this when they were kids and, you know, they're, they're going to be interested in it because, you know, they're nostalgic for it. So, you know, Stranger Things is its own story. It's not exactly, you know, just breaking new territory and doing all kinds of new things. Like it feel, it has again, sort of that Spielberg eighties, close encounters and Goonies and these types of things feel to it. Um, but it was also a new thing. Like it's not, it's not beating you over the head with the fact of, you know, they, they set it in the early eighties, which is wise because it lets them have all these little, t- you know, touchstones that people like and sort of draws them into the show while, you know, having good actors and, you know, a reasonably interesting story. And I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here, but, you know, you, you can't just be nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. I mean, you can, and, and that might be successful if somebody hasn't gone there for a minute, but it doesn't, that gets old with people quickly. And I'm trying to remember when I was, when we were young. Yep. Were there efforts to capitalize on early generation, earlier generations nostalgia? I mean, I think in the 90s, were there things that were catering to 40 year olds at that point where yeah. it's like, oh, here's a reboot of this or here's an updated version of something from the 60s or 70s? Like, how often was that? Ha- were we just not aware of it? Was just media different? So it kind of came and gone. And I don't know. It's... Well, I think that always happens, you know, to some degree. I mean, there's always been like oldies radio stations that are playing music of different people's different generations <laughs> youth and whatnot that they connect with or you know i'm thinking of like record collecting where there's been like huge fads of people like doo-wop records were a thing and now that's basically died out because the people that were nostalgic for doo-wop are also dying out um that got so... dark so... <laughs> well it's it negative happens. 50 below and the people who like doo-wop are dead <laughs> or you know there's in, our episode have fun good happy commuting everybody in england there's this weird genre called northern soul which isn't really as exactly a specific it's music not style or soulful <laughs> it is soulful it's mainly okay. american records that had like a certain tempo that got played in dance halls in like the 60s and so suddenly that was a huge thing and the people are looking for these really rare soul 45s that got played in these dance halls but were like never big in america so there's not that many copies and they were worth a zillion dollars and so you know, there's always that nostalgia factor. There's always people kind of wanting to go back and connect with the things from when they were young because of how it makes them feel. I suspect that we're we're getting a little bit more of it right now um, for the sort of, in a weird way, the same reason that we're talking about GameStop closing, which is, you know, how people consume and take in media has been changing really, really rapidly and you had all these huge companies and machines sort of set up to deliver 
what had been sort of a static, you know, media scene, like the format might change, but the basic ideas stay the same for, I don't know what, from the fifties through, you know, kind of the early aughts, like there's a pretty long run for, you know, media sort of staying the same. And now that it is changing and I think, you know, like people that make movies are sort of struggling with, how to get certain demographics to sit still and pay attention for, <laughs> you know, an hour and a half or two hours. We're that generation that grew up with those things. That's still kind of normal for us to connect to media. So shoveling us a bunch of nostalgia <laughs> is kind of an easy cash in or at least an easy thing, I think, to get green lighted right now, because, you know, there's enough of us out there that, you know, eat this stuff up and then make our kids watch it or whatever it might be. Like, you know, we took Will to see Bumblebee. Yeah. What did he make of it? I mean, he liked it. it you know, for him, it's like, you know, we're talking about these movies, like maybe Iron Eagle. <laughs> I remember thinking Iron Eagle was pretty ridiculous when I saw it, but I know when I saw it for the first time, it was on like HBO. So it was not... You know, I don't know how many years had transpired before I saw it. But anyway, I want to get into a Be Kind Rewind segment. But if you have not treated yourself to Iron Eagle, it is a 80s gem that I cannot recommend highly enough. I I cannot fully endorse this. But uh, point being is you see that movie, you know, in the theater when you're 11 and you think it's awesome. And that's more or less where he is. Like he's 12 and. It was a well-done movie, you know, it was... I enjoyed the Harry and the Hendersons sequence. Yeah. I really enjoyed yep. that in Bumblebee. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, it was a fun movie, and they really did a good job of leaving space to make more of them. Yeah. Because they really don't fire a lot of big names in terms of Transformers lore. Mm-hmm. There's... Uh, excellent opening sequence that I think is about four or five minutes long. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. a little bit longer where they're on Cybertron and there's a war going on on Cybertron and the Autobots have to flee. And you just, it is like just a dopamine rush of like, Hey, it's shockwave. It's Soundwave, It's Optimus. It's like all that over and over again. But then the movie it's live action Transformers the movie for a minute, and you know the the Transformers look like the toys. Yeah, it looks like the cartoon come yep. to life, mm-hmm. and it sort of has that same kind of sensibility. And then it that all kind of fades away, and then it becomes this fish out of water story with Bumblebee and this uh, teenage girl who is mm-hmm. has a bunch of troubles, and it, it just turns into this eighties movie. Right. And I think to, you know, getting back to your question about sort of formulas, I mean, that I think that is one aspect to these things that works is like my son can see it and just enjoy it as kind of a fun, you know, not exactly a kid's movie, but, you know, appropriate for, you know, at least middle schoolers, if not. I mean, I think I would have taken a second or third grader to that and felt fairly comfortable, but, you know, different people may disagree. So he can enjoy it on that level. And then we get to enjoy, you know, the sort of the tongue in the cheek 
aspects to it and the nostalgia and the throwback and the, you know, there was a f- fun soundtrack to it, you know, oh, yeah, I think the soundtrack was amazing, but you know, all music of the time and incidentally way more interesting music than the Weezer album. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of how you do it. Like I'm thinking of Looney Tunes for a second where, a kid can watch it and it's funny and adults can watch it and it's it, it's still funny, but for slightly different reasons in many cases. Like, I think people that do these things well create something that's got a little bit of levels and comp- complexities, maybe the wrong word when it comes to a Transformers movie, but, you know, again, can be enjoyed by different people um, at different ages and et cetera. Yeah, and I think, I mean, getting away from nostalgia a bit, but even the, like, Toy Story, the Pixar folks, mm-hmm. like, I think what they've done, and I haven't seen some of the recent movies, I didn't see Coco, and I think there was one before that that I didn't see, they do a fantastic job of creating films where it has just the visuals, the animation, and the characters are interesting for younger people, but there's a lot in there, a lot of nuance for adults. And um, that can't be an easy thing to pull off. I know. I I agree. I think it's it is difficult. And that's probably why, you know, it's always been true of like animated films that some are really cool and really stand the test of time. And some are just crap that like, you know, kids may enjoy because they're kids. But, you know, it's painful as, (laughs) as adults if you have to sit through it. Do you think there's going to be, like, say, 15, 20 years from now, a run on turning stuff from the 90s and aughts into, like, is there going to be the same type of nostalgia for people who are younger for stuff that they grew up with? I'm guessing yes, but I don't know. Because nothing seems seems to last these days. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, I think 90s and even early aughts, kids share a lot with us like it wasn't that different it will be interesting to see i think as you get to the generation that you know probably were born close to um you know 99 2000 people they kind of grew up with youtube and these sorts of things at their fingertips like you know do they have the same sort of connections and nostalgia for things that and, and my guess is they probably still will. It will just be slightly different things. It will be, you know, YouTubers and Twitch personalities and still some things that would seem more whatever. Like, you know, My Little Pony had a huge resurgence, um, you know. But I'm just guessing. Yeah, I don't know. It, it does, I guess, what, you get trapped in your own era, and I, I think about this a lot. And we, we, you make fun of me because mm-hmm. I don't listen to all that much new music. Right. Uh, Weezer album aside. Um, <laughs> that is not new music, Mike. That is not new music. I, I understand that. <laughs> thus, thus the joke. Um, but like we have some mutual friends who will post on Facebook or something like, oh, this is the best new album of 2019 so far. And it's like, who? 
what? I've never heard of these people. <laughs> well, get, see, I'll look at the cover of Rolling Stone. I'm like, I don't know who that person is. <laughs> right. I've never heard of that person. Like, I'm that guy. I realize <laughs> I've transitioned into that guy. Yeah, I mean, some of this is a pretty normative process for a lot of people as they get older, right? Like, how many people can I think of that are, you know, a generation older than me, like more my parents' age, that will all will say things about music like there was no good music released after 1972, you know, like, the, <laughs> and I'm sure their parents said like, you know, music died when they stopped playing Frank Sinatra on the radio, and but you know, like that's a pretty normal thing to have happen, and so, you know, I, I think what's the reason we get nostalgic, right, is things that connect us to moments, to our youth, to, you know, stuff that we wish we could still experience in the same way that we did when we were that age. And that will never change, like, regardless of what the experiences are, as long as, you know, <laughs> there's still people here in generations, they're going to find things to be nostalgic about. It's just going to be slightly different things or in slightly different ways. And they will. And they won't have gone to GameStop to have purchased it. <laughs> but it, it brings up, this is a little bit off topic, but sort of the momentum that Bohemian Rhapsody has right now mm -hmm. during award season, mm -hmm. I, I find really intriguing. Well, I, I, I have a little bit more cynical view of that, but go ahead. Yeah, well, so maybe we, we share a cynical view. So I, I like the movie. I mm -hmm. thought it was really well done. It's rousing. It's it relies on music that I want to say everyone like that I love that I grew up with. It knows how to capitalize on that capital that it has mm -hmm. with people. Mm -hmm. It celebrates that. It mythologizes it. It you know brings it to life in a few different ways. Uh, the performances are certainly excellent. <clears throat> It's it sidesteps or stays away from quite a few important moments. All the juicy stuff. <laughs> Not all of it. There's some stuff. And actually, when I saw the reviews, I was thinking like, oh, they're totally going to sidestep everything. But they, they do address some of the issues in there uh, with Freddie Mercury and his lifestyle. And there's just a lot about the band that is not accurate. Mm -hmm. in terms of the sequencing of things and you know it's it's very hollywood sized it's right you know they they play up certain moments to to create more of this emotional connection and it seems disingenuous mm -hmm. uh, the movie is entertaining uh, the sequence at live aid is just amazingly well done and, you know, you can go on YouTube right now and watch that performance and you'll get goosebumps. Like, right. It's, they just tried to recreate it and they, they did a pretty decent job of it. Um, so that's a movie about a real band that to me felt pretty artificial mm -hmm. in terms of like emotional connection to the individuals that were portrayed on screen. And by comparison, I saw Star is Born and that's obviously a not based on a true story. Mm -hmm. um, and that just seemed like those people were real. And mm -hmm. there was a lot more genuine emotion in that movie. Mm -hmm. 
And it seems like Bohemian Rhapsody is riding this wave of nostalgia and myth-making that people are, at least uh, from an award standpoint, are buying into. And this totally does not get into the whole Brian Singer stuff, which I'm aware of, and it's not good, it's bad. Um, so I don't know, what, I kind of cut you off. What were your thoughts on this? Well, I feel like some of what you're, and I haven't seen, like, did it get nominated for the same um, categories at the Academy Awards as it did for the Golden Globes? Well, and I think it, I think he won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Actor, which again is just pretty surprising. Hmm. Uh, well, I do think he's a good actor, and I haven't yeah. seen the movie, so I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not. Um, You've read the headlines. You can commentate just as much as other people. Right. I mean, the, the, this is what I'll say is that, <laughs> that we have this weird thing in our today's society where there's like these entities that have sort of established themselves as something that matters or is respectable, that there's really there's no meat behind <laughs> that. But we just sort of take it at face value. The Golden Globes are one of these things where the gold, there's like a well, tiny they're always, group, they're always a bit goofy, yeah. The Golden Globes were created by a small group of people. It's basically because they wanted to get to hobnob with, with the stars. And um, there's been a lot of controversy where people basically – didn't quite buy getting awards, but really shady things would happen. Like they would treat these voters to a performance of, you know, like say it's the musical that's like a private performance and meet and greet with all of the people <laughs> from a movie. And then lo and behold, this movie that's not on anybody's radar for any awards wins the Golden Globe for. <laughs> so it's just, it's not something that is particularly uh reputable but sort of gets put up there as being not quite the academy awards but something that we should care about um and really we probably shouldn't care about it other than just like if you're the kind of person that likes to tune in and watch an award show and see celebrities and see what they say which is not my thing but it's definitely some people's thing another another good example of this is um Oh shoot! I'm blanking on the the name of them. The like reliability awards that you see cited in car commercials all the time. Oh, that's a whole other topic that we could do a whole episode. Right, on. but it's like this survey said that this car is the most reliable, and I'm like, I want to know where they got their data from. <laughs> <laughs> JD Power. JD Power is like an industry creation where they do sort of these surveys at the behest of companies. It's just it's not. There's there's not a lot of validity, but people sort of see them and they think, oh, J.D. Power, yeah, that's most reliable. All right, cool. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't mean to take us way off on a tangent, but I, in, I'll be interested to see when it comes to like the Academy Awards if it has the same whatever as it as it did at the Golden Globes because my sense is that there are better movies and better performances but I will say I do think that Remy Malik is a is a really good actor yeah, so I, yeah and I, he was great I, I thought I thought he was you know very good in that role I'm just surprised that that movie's gotten as much critical acclaim you know according to rewards and I realized no one not to do the whole Eddie Vedder, I don't know what this means when he won a Grammy. <laughs> you know, it's art, and who is to say one 
piece of art is better than another. We, right. We, and, we, re- we remember who won and didn't win best actor, uh, like best film or best director. We kind of remember snubs. It's something to talk about. And I don't know if him winning best actor would be snubbing somebody else, but it, w- it just would be surprising to me. Yeah. And I mean, even the so-called reputable awards, when you come down to it, it's, you know, it's a lot of old, old predominantly white people stuff so you know there's a reason why people have had big problems with some of their choices over and, the, it's like and i guess that's the thing because i remember just to get back to bohemian rhapsody like when this movie was in production and it was like you know sasha Baron Cohen's going to be freddie mercury mm-hmm. and i was thinking wow that'll be amazing like he he is a very interesting actor whole whole take chances um also seen him perform in musicals before so he should be able to pull that off a little bit i mean no one's going to be freddie mercury but like this will be a very interesting film and then there was he got fired there are all these quotes about you know he didn't agree with the band and the band wanted to be more about queen and less about freddie mercury and so it's all this stuff that i was just aware of during the development of the movie Mm -hmm. and then it just seemed like they were going to water everything down and I don't know. It's like that's being celebrated, which I'm glad the movie's successful. Queen's music is amazing. Mm-hmm. It celebrates the entire band. And at the same time, kind of glosses over some important things that that movie could have been about, right. which is a shame. And yet it's still being celebrated and critically acclaimed. And it's just it's a weird message to me. Mm-hmm. It's a weird whitewashing isn't the right term, but it's like they're celebrating this fiction. And I realize it's a movie, whatever. Mm-hmm. They're like celebrating this representation of reality that really, in a lot of ways, is unfortunate. Well, I mean, I it's, just, this is the, the biopic thing, right? Like, yeah, like it's just it feels it's, safe. It's like a celebration of safeness. But this has been true for a, a while now that we get these biopics of celebrities or whatever, and they're they are very watered down versions of the story, or sometimes just somewhat dishonest versions of it. You know, I yeah, I I, I the Howard Stern <laughs> movie was pretty entertaining, but I, I don't I don't think we really got the unvarnished view of Howard Stern <laughs> from that one. What? <laughs> He's just an affable guy. He's right. Just, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you, the, the, the biopic thing where they, they tend to look at it through the Hollywood lens of what's going to sell and make a nice story as opposed to what's the true story has, has been a problem for a while. Well, and I think and again, I I've written about A Star is Born. You can see that on my blog. Um, if you've seen the movie, read read the article if you haven't see the movie first because there's definitely spoilers in there. Um, the movie touches on a few things in like my personal life. And no, it's not me trying to be a pop star. Uh, but, but that <laughs> I'd movie, like to see that. Yes. That movie does not shy away from, I would say some dark corners of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not celebrated in the same way that Bohemian Rhapsody is. And I guess why I equate those movies, because I saw them fairly close together 
they're competing for awards right now. The actors are competing for awards. Um, and it, I wish something like a star is born was getting more recognition for what it does in terms of highlighting some things about mental illness, just showing that in all its realities instead of a film that glosses over some important material in the sake of having a more digestible and entertaining piece of pop culture. Mm-hmm. And again, it'll be interesting to see because everything I read about Star is Born when it came out, and I also haven't seen it, was that it was going to be a huge awards movie. So, And it hasn't been. That's what's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. It's sort of whatever momentum it had. And it's interesting how these these kind of quote-unquote races go. Um, it just... It's, and at this point, it would almost be surprising if that like, rallied back in one, but who knows? Anyway, I, I, I would go see both movies if you haven't seen either of them. They're both good. And I like Bohemian Rhapsody. I didn't, I didn't hate it. It's it's very entertaining. It's it's very well done. Um, but it's just uh, weird. It just gets back to the nostalgia thing of what what do we celebrate? What do we right? What do we get into again? And and I like my rock and roll stories gritty and real, Mike. <laughs> well, I know there's one coming out about Elton John. That's already filmed. <laughs> That's going to be gritty and real. And but I, I imagine with the success of this movie, they're they're just going to see who else they can make a film about. When, when do we get Hammer of the Gods, the movie? <laughs> With that for people that don't know, that's that's one of the original sort of Led Zeppelin biographies, if you will. I I may have read it and written a book report on it when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> you need to find that and just read it. Do a dramatic reading on a future episode. <laughs> that would be amazing. It would definitely screw with our family uh, uh, oriented. Uh, you know, rules other than you know me popping open beers. But uh, yeah, it was it was not appropriate sixth grade reading material. I never read The Dirt, but I imagine that could be turned into a, a frolicking film, mm. the cruise story. Right. Not nearly the same uh, caliber of band as Queen. Uh, right. But certainly some interesting characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Guns and Roses movie that could certainly be made. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. At least to me, since since we're discussing nostalgia and and bands, I always like to plug uh, if you want a book to read and you're into sort of, you know, indie bands, um, our band could be your life is a book you should read if you haven't um, covering a, a, a variety. Each chapter is a different band from, um, you know, kind of the I would say late 70s through mid 80s. Um, the butthole surfer chapter alone is <laughs> so worth your time. And I've mentioned this this book before, I think in our first episode. Um, but Grunge is the the official the oral history of Seattle rock music. Yep, uh, that is a really fascinating book to read, especially given uh, the death of deaths of many of the individuals who were prominently featured in mm-hmm. that era. Um, so, yeah. Well, 
there's somebody out there in a boardroom right now trying to calculate how to get dollars from us on things like this, Mm -hmm. which is both kind of sad and kind of interesting. Yeah, but I think that's where it it fails is like when somebody does something because they cared about it in the first place and they want to like introduce like a new generation to it or these sorts of things, I think that's when it tends to work. And when somebody is trying to figure out kind of your question of like, is there a formula to this and can I apply it and then just go find properties that haven't been um, you know, revisited and and push this out there is is a good way to fail at it. Yeah, and, and maybe bring us back to the Bumblebee movie. It it felt like they were smartly doing this. Mm-hmm. It it felt like I was being manipulated, but I was okay with it. <laughs> right, and and maybe in this case, since uh, I, I believe Bay was still an executive producer on this, like you know. He he's had some uh, some try and fail and learn from it opportunities here. So that you know there probably was a little bit more calculus there based on some of the criticism and failings of the previous movies that that um, played into how this movie was done. But you know it was still well done for what it is. Well, I'm going to end on this note to bring us completely to have a good bookend for for the episode. Mm -hmm. So we were in our building today talking about prior cold spells here in Minnesota. And people literally popped out of their offices nearby like (laughs) like lemmings, I guess, or like meerkats. Like they poked their head up like, what? (laughs) We're talking about like what the worst storm was. And suddenly there was a gaggle of nine people talking about, well, back in my day, we mm-hmm. had to go to school and I can't believe they're canceling school right now. It's only 40 below. <laughs> we had to stand out at the bus stop for hours and wait for our bus. Or it, it was hilarious. Like, yep. I was just sitting back thinking like, wow, I'm, I'm close to being this person. <laughs> shaking my fist at clouds and telling people to get off my lawn. Yeah, you're, you're already pretty close. Uh, for the record, if if people are are wondering that that don't live here right now, it is negative twenty three actual temperature, and negative forty nine with the wind chill. Doesn't even seem real. <laughs> well, this is this is you know once a generation type uh, temperatures. This is not normal even for Minnesota. Except it happened in twenty fourteen. I was living here. Not quite this cold, but it was right. cold. This is this one's record setting. See, what I like to think about is if it was 100 degrees warmer, it's still only 49 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> With the wind chill, yes. With the wind chill. <laughs> when I lived in Houston, if it was 49 degrees, that place like shut down. People were didn't know what to do with themselves. Right. Well, I mean, just just earlier in this week, there was the thing making the rounds, at least on my social media, where the the, a Florida TV station had, you know, run their little weather thing, and the high today was like 53, and the meteorologist standing there in front of like the little, uh, you know, tip screen, the little the the tips for you know wearing layers and don't <laughs> <laughs> it's like don't stay outside the high, too long. The high was 53. I mean, I'm sure the low was down near freezing, which is cold 
you know, in Florida terms, but um, of course, uh, Minnesotans got a got a got it in their hands, and it was making their rounds quickly, and people were laughing at it, and that was literally, you know, three four days ago, and now we have this. So. Yeah, well, karma. It's not it's not not kind. <laughs> right. But no, it's it's serious business. So I hope everyone can stay safe, uh, stay in, stay warm. And uh, we will be back. So this is uh, two weeks in a row with an episode. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully this, you know, trying to stick to a schedule will work at least until the next major life event that occurs and disrupts things. But maybe between now and then we can record each week. We should have been out defending our trivia title uh, about music, but... <sighs> well, and you say we, and I, I wasn't even able to make the last one, so I was looking forward to to, to being the cherry on the top of this this team and yeah i think i think your addition would have filled in some gaps uh our team name when we did win back in november is old val kilmer <laughs> <laughs> which is great and which you, is great and it's you like had... the 30th anniversary of willow today it would have been epic yeah. to celebrate that um yep uh, um next i <laughs> you're trying to send me off on tangents again, but I was just going to say that uh, you sent me the picture of the answers from the November one. And like the, there were like you guys that got, of course gotten most of them right. And then it just like the two or three that you were gotten wrong, you know, we're all in my wheelhouse. So yeah, you would, you would have, like I said, you would have, we had a nice mix of folks who knew some, off-color stuff, pop music, and mm-hmm. yeah, it. I, I liked our chances. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bummed about it, but you know, there, we maybe have to find one between now and then because I, I know there's other places that they show up around town and see if we can go win a title in a bar tab somewhere else. Yes, you should investigate. Um, so yeah, let us know what you think about all the the nostalgia grab i don't know if that's a like a cash grab is nostalgia grab is that a term yet should that be a term (laughs) if it if it's not it should be fair enough all right sir uh you can find me on twitter at the id dm and chris where can they find you uh also on twitter at geekzinga you know whenever we do these um pods i try to be on there a little bit more um I should probably work on my Twitter feed. It's it's a little a little toxic, like not directed at me, but just this sort of stuff that's coming up. So <laughs> it would be great if some people listening to this wanted to add me and give me something more interesting to see when I'm Twitter, because there's a it's a lot of venom and stuff that uh, you know makes you me not want to. You know, I, I picked up some like political stuff along oh, the way. I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, but frankly, you know, I also followed like just kind of a lot of nerdy people that seemed fun for one reason or another that, you know, sometimes wander into some of the, you know, the nerdy blowbacks that uh, we've talked about um, on some of our previous episodes. I feel like but, we do it in a way that's more constructive. Well, again, people can give us feedback on whether or not that's true. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I think we do it in a, in a constructive way. There's, you know, there's there's some angry people in Nerd Dome out there, and so that stuff tends to come across the bow. 
Right. I mean, it's people know how Twitter is. It just it's a little less filtered, a little less curated than some of my other social media feeds. So um, I do make an effort to get on that when we we've been doing this to see if people are responding and talking about anything. Right on. Um, so yeah, uh, stay warm out there, sir. And uh, hopefully, uh, I don't know what you got going on this weekend, but maybe we'll get together. Sounds good. All right, have a good night. Yep, you too. 